At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Morning. Good to see you guys. Anyone besides me just excited to be with the church this morning and celebrate our great King? Yeah, He is alive. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one below the seat in front of you that you can grab, or if you have a uh, a device, phone, whatever, you want to follow along that way. Um, For you that are at home and joining with us, we're glad you're with us as well. We're going to be looking at this passage together this morning, but what I want to do is just read a few verses from it. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter, but I'm going to read just a couple verses and then pray for our time as we study God's Word, and then we're going to kind of jump into it from there. So this is Matthew chapter 28, says this in verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here For he has risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are thankful this morning for your resurrection, and we gather to worship you. And now, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would come and by your spirit work among us to raise our faith, our hope, and our love for you. Would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you have to say this morning? What is of me, let it fall away, but what is of you? May it impact and change our lives, I pray. Move in power, Lord Jesus, we ask in your holy and precious name. Amen. The summer before my... Uh, senior year in high school, I faced a difficult decision. My family were missionaries in the Middle East during the time, and we were home that summer on furlough, and the opportunity came for me uh, to stay with another family that was in my hometown of Akron and to go back to my high school that I had gone to previously before we moved. It was either that or return back to Egypt for my senior year, and that summer I wrestled a lot with what I would do, and ultimately made the decision to stay in Akron to live with another family and, uh, and to go back to my high school for my senior year. And, and it was a good year, um, but it was over the course of the year that I learned something very valuable. I learned the power of presence. A lot of things happened in that year. My soccer team that I was on for our high school went to the state finals that year. I celebrated my birthday and various holidays. I had a part in our school musical. I learned to play Wonderwall by Oasis on the guitar. That's not really that important, but it was a fun little anecdote. And all throughout all those events and all those moments, I would call my parents from time to time. I would send them pictures and information about what would happen. But it just wasn't quite the same as I went through all those things as having them there, having them present. I missed 
their presence. Because there's a power in presence, isn't there, when we go through the events of life. You know, I think we as a culture have learned that over this past year, the power of presence. As our life has been upended, many things we have gone through, not being able to enjoy the presence, oftentimes, of the people we love, or feeling separated, distance from them, reminded that there's a power when we're together for all sorts of events and life and things. I think even one of the things we've been reminded of is the power of presence through, sadly, the many, many deaths that have been experienced over this last year. You know, just recently, a few weeks ago, I had a a man I knew for many years back home in my hometown of Akron who passed away. He was one of those larger-than-life guys, the guy who always had a smile, who always had a joke, who always made you feel welcome. And it dawned on me the other day that when I go back home, I will never be able to experience his presence again. Death is the absence of presence. It's a pain and sting and separation that we feel. And presence matters. It matters with people, but even more than that, it matters even more when it comes to God. When it comes to our relationship with God, I think many people in our culture have given up on the idea of presence. That God could actually be present with them. Many years ago, the famed philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uttered the now famous phrase, God is dead and we have killed him. As he reflected on the decline of Christianity, Nietzsche noted that God was no longer needed in modern society. Whether it was through science or secularism, the enlightenment, whatever it was, God was dead. It didn't matter. That phrase uttered many years ago is just as true for many people today. The idea of a personal, intimate God, one in which you could have a relationship and a presence with you through the events of life, for many people is as much as a fairy tale as the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy. Our culture disconnected from that idea long ago. Spirituality, sure, we're all for that. Give me some yoga, give me some meditation, let me center myself. But a personal relationship with a living God? Come on. And yet, when we look around our world, and I think in the quiet moments of our souls, we even recognize that our hearts long for that. That there's something in us that aches and feels the sting of separation. We feel like there's something more, that there's something beyond our human life, like we're created for a more meaningful reality, that the relationships on earth can't just quite satisfy what we long for. And so we fill ourselves with all sorts of things, hoping to distract ourselves from the ache and pain of separation that we feel. But all along, we never stop to think that what we long for, what we could actually experience, is God's presence. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you gave up on the idea of God being present with you long ago. Well, if it is, then I think our author, Matthew, wants to encourage you to rethink your reality. Because 
Matthew writes for us an account of Jesus' life. He was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. He followed him, learned from him, and he was the one that experienced the reality of Jesus. And he writes this book, the Gospel of Matthew, to share the good news about Jesus because he believes that there's something significant about his life, about his death, and in fact, his resurrection. That's the best news in the whole world. And he wants us to think deeply about what it means. And so in the last chapter of his book, Matthew takes us on a journey. He takes us on a journey through three scenes in three places. And through that, he wants us to consider, what does this really mean? What does the resurrection of Jesus mean for our lives? The place that Matthew begins is at the tomb of Jesus. We see in verse 1 what we read earlier, that after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day, two women, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, went to Jesus' tomb. And then Matthew recounts in the story, and he says, And behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, in many ways, this is Matthew's invitation to us, into the text, to see and to think about what he's saying. Matthew loves this little word, behold. It's the idea of seeing or to observe, to look, to gaze. And Matthew uses it frequently throughout his gospel to kind of raise the drama, to kind of cause us to consider what he's actually sharing. And so as he moves into this story of what happens at the tomb, he begins with this phrase, behold. It's like he's saying to us, look, look, this is really important. And the first thing that he wants to think about as we come to the tomb is the power of the resurrection. Matthew is the only gospel writer that highlights the earthquake and the angels that were present when Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason that Matthew brings that is he's trying to communicate this is a significant event of cosmic proportions. And so he highlights that heaven itself and that the angels represent and the earth itself and the earthquake that it represents come together in this moment to say, hey, there's something significant happening here. Matthew shared earlier that there was an earthquake that took place on the cross, but now he connects the reality of the cross to the resurrection to say the fact that Jesus rose from the dead matters. There's a power here that unites heaven and earth. Now at this point, you might be feeling like, this feels a little far-fetched for me. Like We're talking earthquakes and angels? Like, uh, What's this all about? Sounds like a good story, but I'm not sure this is reality. But it's actually as we come to the tomb that Matthew wants us to deal with the reality of the resurrection. Not just the power, but the reality. For Matthew, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is an actual historical event that he's recounting. He's not just telling us a nice story. He's recounting to us something that is real and true. And at the tomb, he highlights two key things that we need to consider in regards to the reality of the resurrection. The first thing that Matthew wants us to consider is that the tomb is actually empty. He highlights the fact that Jesus isn't there. They said, you came looking for his body, but he is not here. He has risen. You see, Matthew wants to remind his audience and remind us today that when they came to that tomb that Sunday morning so many years ago, Jesus wasn't there. The tomb was actually empty. And that creates a huge problem for a lot of people. And it causes us a problem today. 
Because what do you do with an empty tomb? Especially for someone who made the sort of claims that Jesus made. If the tomb is empty, how do you ultimately explain it? Because listen, if you wanted to squash the Jesus movement, if you wanted to just kill at the very beginning this whole radical ragtag group of Jews who now believe Jesus is Lord and Savior and that his resurrection is changing the whole entire world, if you wanted to just put an end to the quit, that really quick and snuff it out, there is one simple way to do it. Just produce the body. That's all you got to do. And yet the tomb is empty. And Matthew wants to highlight that the tomb is empty. Because one of the things he points at the tomb is that the Roman guards were there. You see, Jesus was a radical and by many considered an insurrectionist. And so Rome wasn't just about to let anyone deal with Jesus' body and tomb. They post guards to guard his tomb so that his body couldn't be taken, so that his followers wouldn't rise up. Guards were present at this tomb. It was a tomb anyone could have gone and seen. But the problem is, Jesus' body still wasn't there. It was actually empty. And what we know, as much as we can know anything in the reality of history, is that the tomb actually was empty. Michael Grant, who was a professor for a number of years at uh, Cambridge and the University of Edinburgh, he's a historian of ancient Greek and Roman and first century. He's written over 50 books. He's not a Christian. He wrote a book uh, a number of years ago called Jesus, a historian's perspective on the Gospels. And he sought to kind of recalibrate what is the actual historical truth surrounding Jesus. He was a real person. He really lived. What can we find? And at one point in his book, Grant notes the reality of the empty tomb. He writes this, he says, Even if the historian chooses to regard the youthful apparition as extra-historical, he cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb. If we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. So Matthew forces us first to consider the reality of the resurrection, that the tomb was empty. But you might say, okay, that's fine, but there must be an explanation for that. So Matthew brings forth his second piece of evidence that we need to consider of the reality of the resurrection. It's the witnesses. Matthew notes that there are several key witnesses that he's recounting their story of. It's the women who show up at Jesus' tomb. And it's these women that, for Matthew, validate the reality of these Events. There's three things that he actually points to the validity of these women in their early witness. One, the first thing is that they are women. Now, this is actually huge because if you were going to tell a fake story about a risen king in Jesus' day and age, you would not use women as your key witnesses. Because in that day and age, women were second class citizens. Now, I'm not saying that's how it should be, I'm just saying that's how it was. And women's testimony wasn't even permitted in court to validify events when people were tried. And so in Jesus' day, if you were going to bring key witnesses to say this really happened, you wouldn't present women unless it was actually true. And it was true that Jesus appeared to these women. 
And on a side note, I think if there was ever a statement of the dignity and value and worth and love that God has for women, it's the fact that Jesus chose to reveal his resurrection to them first. You should be honored by that fact, ladies. But it's not only the fact that they're women, it's that they're named women for Matthew. He gives their names. He presents this as real people, not just some women, Mary of Magdala and the other Mary, known disciples of Jesus, they were present there. Matthew would have written this account while they were still alive. And it's as if he's inviting his audience to say, you don't believe me? You can go ask these women. They saw it. So not only the fact that they're women, that they're named, but the second thing is that the fact that these women and Jesus' disciples themselves were genuinely transformed. If there was ever a religion that would not bow the knee and worship before a human being, it is the Jewish religion. It's a religion whose first key tenets of their law is you shall have no other gods before me and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Yet in this moment, both here and later on in this same chapter, when these followers of Jesus see the risen Christ, they bow in worship. Their lives were utterly transformed, even to the point that they were willing to die for the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's here at the tomb that Matthew brings us face to face with the reality of the resurrection. He reminds us that the Christian belief and faith is not based primarily on a myth or a nice idea or a set of rules. That the Christian faith centers itself on the claim that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he announced that by his cross, he defeated Satan, sin, and death, and is bringing God's kingdom to bear on the world. That the promises that God had made to his people to restore creation to its intention were coming true through him, and that he is the true Messiah and king over the whole world. The starting and centering point of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus, because it's through the resurrection that what he did through his life and death is revealed. And Matthew wants us to consider, what do you believe about the resurrection? Because it matters. It matters. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way in his book, The Reason for God. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And what Matthew bears witness to, and what I stand here to bear witness to today, is that 2,000 years ago, I believe that a true historical event happened. That the man, Jesus Christ, walked out of the grave, risen from the dead, and is in fact Lord and King over the whole world. That is the claim of Christianity and the claim of the resurrection. But Matthew knows that this claim brings a great challenge to our world. And it's why, as he brings us to the tomb to face the reality, he then, in his story, moves us from the tomb to the city to consider the challenge of the resurrection. Look at verse 11. He says, While they were going, behold, again, an invitation to look and consider, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people 
his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It's as if Matthew knows there's going to be a challenge to the account that he's recording. And so he deals with it. He recounts the story of these guards coming to the chief priest. Now the chief priest, the heads of the Jewish religion, would have had a lot to lose if Jesus actually rose from the dead. And since these chief priests don't have another way to explain why the tomb is empty and people are bearing witness to the resurrection, they decide to do two things. First, to pay off the soldiers. This is pretty common practice for them. It's the same thing they did with Judas to betray Jesus and ultimately lead to his death. So they pay off these soldiers, and then they make up a story. If you don't have another option, then at some point you have to try to create your own narrative. And those in power love to create their own narrative to keep their power, don't they? But I think it's at this point we need to note something that's important for us today. I think it's worth noting to say that no viable historical explanation has ever been given for what happened to Jesus' body. If it was stolen, no one knows by whom. It's never been found or recounted. There's nothing in history outside of the claim of the resurrection that lets us know. And this story that the chief priests create, it was widely circulated, so much so that we even see Christians defending it centuries later. Justin Martyr, an early apologist of Christianity, defends the reality of the resurrection. And one of the things they essentially say is, how could the body be stolen? There were guards there. You expect 11 fishermen from Galilee who ran away from Jesus at the first sign of trouble to show up and overthrow Roman guards? So why create a story like this? I like to refer to this moment as the anti-gospel. It's the story of Jesus that explains or seeks to explain away the reality of the resurrection. The anti-gospel is the message that challenges the Christian claims. To say it's a fairy tale, it's not true. But why? Why is it necessary? Well, Because at some point we have to recognize that if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. If Jesus actually rose from the dead, then it turns the entire narrative of how we know the world on its head. It places him as king and lord not us. And so at some point, you either have to wrestle and believe the reality of the resurrection, or you better find some way to explain it away. Because the resurrection at some point challenges our core beliefs. It forces us to ask the question, what narrative shapes your life? What is true about the world? It forces us to ask the fundamental questions. Why are we here? Where are we going? What is this whole world about? What's the narrative this morning that shapes how you live? What do you believe about the world? Because the resurrection challenges you to consider. If it is true, then maybe there's a story of reality that you've missed somewhere along the way. And I think it's at this moment that Matthew wants us to challenge and consider what the resurrection means for us. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to consider two things in light of what Matthew presents. First, is the resurrection true? 
I'd invite you to consider the historical reliability of the resurrection. I believe it is as historically true as anything we can know. And I think you should consider it. And the second thing I think you need to consider is the story in light of it. That if Jesus really is risen from the dead, then that means there is hope for this world. You see, all of us have a longing for a better world. We long for a world that is just and right, where there's an abundance for all, where there's peace and prosperity. But oftentimes, we adopt or believe worldviews that run counter to that reality, to that hope. And yet it's here at the resurrection that God makes his claim that he has a better world. And it's not a world somewhere else. It's a world that's breaking in in the midst of this one through the lordship of Jesus Christ. The resurrection provides a reason for living now and a hope for the future, not only for your life, but the whole world. And so Matthew, as he causes us to bring to these claims, he then moves us to his final scene. Because if the resurrection is real and we wrestle with the reality, then what do we do in response? Well, Matthew invites us to go to the place Jesus told his disciples to go, to the mountain on Galilee. And he concludes his gospel by writing, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, it's here on the mountain that we hear the call of the resurrection. As we wrestle with its reality, as we face its challenge, it's on the mountain that we hear the call of the resurrected Christ to join him in his mission and purpose for the world. I love this section because it shows us how we can respond to the reality of the resurrection. The first thing that we see in these disciples as they encounter Jesus alive in front of them, present, is it says that they worshipped him. Because listen, that's what you do when someone rises from the dead. If somebody shows up from the grave, what other option do you have but to bow your knee? But I love that Matthew, in the midst of that, notes that even some of them doubted. That's always an encouraging verse to me. If these disciples could stand in front of the resurrected Christ and still wrestle with what the reality of it and what it means, certainly then God has grace for us in our own journey as we wrestle with our own doubts and seek to understand what his resurrection means. But I think that the doubting also forces us to recognize that it's not often more evidence that we need. Sometimes we come to the resurrection, we think, well, if Jesus just showed up in front of me, of course I would believe. Yet here, the people that knew him most are encountering the resurrected Christ and are still wrestling with the reality. It's not evidence that we need. It's the faith, the trust to believe that he is who he said he is. And then to follow him. See, Jesus then gives his famous call he reminds them that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The resurrection reminds us that Jesus is now in charge of the world, that he is the king and he is moving it towards his purposes. And he invites them and all of us into following that way. He tells them to go and make disciples, 
to train others to live life the way Jesus desires for us to live, to now know God's kingdom and live God's ways, to find an entirely new identity, not in themselves, but in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach, to learn, to understand what it looks like to live life Jesus' way. Jesus invites us to his life and his mission. That's how we respond to the resurrection. We worship him, and then we follow him, and then we go and seek to live on mission to help others do the same, to bring the good news of the kingdom through word and deed in all the places that God calls us to be. But in the midst of this call, Jesus gives a promise, and it's this promise that I want us to be reminded of this morning. For Matthew ends his gospel and Jesus ends his words in this moment with this phrase in verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the reality of the resurrection, as we wrestle with it, as we face its challenge, and as we respond to its call, we receive a promise from Jesus that he will be with you. That's the good news that we hear this morning that the Christ is with you, that Jesus himself, his presence, can be with you when you put your faith in him and follow after him. Because of the resurrection, you can know the presence of God. You can know the presence of Jesus in your life, a real presence that brings real love and real joy and real hope for this life and eternity. You, through Jesus, can have your whole world turned around and you can find in his presence what your heart longs for. Because in the resurrection, God has returned and he's inviting us back into that relationship. One of my favorite videos to watch uh, are those videos that they show sometimes of when uh, a military man or woman is reunited with their family. I don't know if you ever watch these videos. I, I always get sucked into them and I always bawl my eyes out every single time. Right? Because there's always this moment like the family's at some high school basketball game or they've gotten some award for something. They, they have no idea what's going on. They just know. And they've been living constantly for so long with this absence from their mom or from their dad. They felt that sting of separation. And yet here they are in the middle of the basketball court receiving some award and then here comes the parent around the corner. And I always love the moment where you watch the kids' faces. Because at first it takes a second, doesn't it? Like, whoa, are they, are they really here? And then at some moment, the joy comes. The surprise happens. And the sting is gone because their dad is there. Their mom is present. Their whole reality is changed in that moment because they're reunited with the person they long for most. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the reunification moment for us. We were separated from God. The whole world was because of our sin. We feel the sting of separation all the time. Our hearts long for it. 
And we feel it most prominently in those moments where death comes and it feels like it's raining and ruling. We feel the sting and the separation that we feel from one another. But even more deeply, we feel the sting of separation from the God who made us. And yet, on the cross, Jesus, in his grace and kindness, paid the penalty for our sin, for the thing that separates us from God. And then on that day, three days later, he burst from the tomb to say, I've won and you can be reunited with your father. You can join again with him and you can know his real presence. And when it comes, it changes everything. That hope that you long for, that world that you long for, that peace that you long for, that freedom from the guilt and shame that you feel that you long for is brought into fruition through Jesus. And it's declared powerfully across time by his resurrection to say, Satan doesn't win. Sin doesn't win. Death doesn't win. I win and you can have a real relationship with me. How can you know God's presence in your life this morning? If you say, yes, I believe in the resurrection, what does it look like? Paul gives us the simple words in Romans 10:9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So you don't have to earn it. You don't have to do enough to work it. All you do is have to believe it and say, yes, I believe the reality of the resurrection, that it is true and historical and happened. And I believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and I want him to be Lord of my life. And when you do that, God will change your life. You will know a peace that will never fade. You will know a love that will never end. You will have a purpose that no one can take away from you. And you will have a world that will carry on for eternity with Jesus at the center. God invites you this morning to put your faith in Jesus. If you would like to do that, I would love to talk to you after our service. I would love to pray with you. But for now, let me take a moment and pray with you and for you. Jesus, we thank you in this moment that you are alive. You didn't stay dead in that tomb, but you burst forth and you announced that we have hope and life and an eternal relationship with God. What is eternal life, Jesus, but to know you, our God and our King. Thank you for reuniting us back with our Father. Thank you for defeating your enemies. Thank you that you You are working in the midst of this world right now to transform us, to change things. That the story of the resurrection is not about some event further down, but it's a moment in reality and history that changes us today. So Lord, I pray for anyone this morning who has not put their faith in you. I pray that you would cause them to wrestle with the reality of the resurrection and come to that place where they see it for what it is, a true historical event that happened. I pray you would help them to have the faith to trust in you and to surrender their life to you as Lord. For those of us that are following you and have put their faith in you, I pray even this morning, reaffirm our faith in what you have done in rising from the dead. Renew in us the hope and love. Remind us of the relationship that we have with you right now because of Jesus' name. 
Christ. Stir our hearts to love you more even in this moment, we pray. We continue, God, to just celebrate your resurrection this morning and to worship you through who you are. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.